As Isaiah mentioned in his prayer, we're so thankful for Jesus. And really, that's the argument that Paul has been making for the last couple of chapters and into chapter 4. In in chapter 4, and we'll do a little bit of a recap, uh, we got this idea that faith is the great equalizer. And Abraham is brought forth as an example of that equalizer uh, simply because he was, righteousness was credited to him because of faith. Um, And we we talked about the difference there between faith and and using the law for righteousness and using faith for righteousness. And Paul uh, uh, brings up this example from Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Um, he was fully convinced that God, uh, that what God promised he was able to do, uh, that God would do that. And it was credited to him for righteousness. In fact, we looked later in, in chapters after that when God told Abraham that he would have a son uh, and he believed him. Later when God asked him to sacrifice that heir, he was willing to do it. And so we talked a little bit about uh, James and how James says that Abraham was justified works by works, but that it was the faith that moved him to work. So faith was the great equalizer. And faith is for all. In chapter 4, verse 13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if they had become heirs by the law, faith is empty. And the promise is nullified. For the law brings wrath. Why is that? Why does the law bring wrath? We've kind of mentioned it a couple of times. It's because it points out where you're wrong. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to say, you're not supposed to do this. Uh, It draws the boundaries. And so, uh, because of that, the law brings wrath. Because where there is no law, there is no transgression either. There's not a law. You can't break the law. All right, one of the things that we didn't get to cover uh, from the last class was the very last question. Um, And that was, the last question from the previous class is, why do you think the phrase is used in verse 18, against hope, Abraham believed in hope? And that's in chapter 4 and verse 18. I think this is a good way to recap recap what, uh, what we're talking about this morning. What does that look like in us today? So what does that phrase mean to you? Abraham, uh, against hope, Abraham believed in hope. That seems a little weird. What do you think that means? Very good. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll touch on that in just a, a moment. Absolutely. I, I think Abraham, I, I think he knew that what he, he has in mind is humanly impossible. And his trust is just completely in God. And he turned that whole thing over to God. Hope against hope. Hope against hope. And, and Rissa, back to kind of what you were saying, this idea that 
he was believing beyond what should be possible, right? Specifically from human terms. Uh, Brent? Yeah, and um, I think we usually define hope as like, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but we'll see if it does. Yeah. I'm really like, got my fingers crossed. But I think for them, hope was something that you knew was going to happen, but has not happened yet. More like anticipation. And so if you define it that way, Abraham was not anticipating an heir. Like there was no hope right, that there was, right. there, he, that wasn't going to happen. But because God said it was, now he says, I'm anticipating Very good. Uh, and so this hope against hope is kind of a, almost a poetic term, if you will, or, or, or turn of phrase that indicates beyond hope. I'm hoping beyond hope. And Brad, I, I think you, you touched on it again. It's like this concept of hope is a little diluted, right? And, and as we get into things like faith and grace and hope, and we're going to talk about that this morning, like these things start to kind of take on new meanings for me. And, and this hope is something much stronger than just, well, I, here we go. I really hope it happens, right? We, keep, we say that. I really hope that that happens. That is not the hope that we're talking about. The hope that we're talking about will change someone's life. It will change their behavior. It will cause them to do something that probably looks very foolish to other people. And even, Rissa, like the way that you were saying, like, I don't even have an expectation in this life that I will see this promise fulfilled. I'm still going to do it. That's how we live, right? Like what kind, I mean, there are certainly benefits to being a Christian in this material life. But that's not what we were promised. We were actually promised a lot of strife and a lot of conflict and a lot of pressure and a lot of friction. So why do we live the way that we do? We hope for something that changes us because we have an expectation of what is to come later. And so that, I think, is what it looks like in us. Um, hope beyond hope. I really, really like that phrase because it takes what we normally call hope and, and just capitalizes or, or exponentially uh, multiplies it um, to the point where we change our lives, we change our behavior, and we change our actions. We got a uh, comment over here. It's easier on the negative side of things, right? If there was like a, like I have negative expectations. Like I always expect the bad to happen, right? Maybe that's human nature. It's so easy to make that leap. <laughs> but it's much more difficult to make that leap to expecting the good things. 
Um, we've got another comment. Have I talked about have I talked about the dopaminergic system yet in class? Have I referenced that? Dopaminergic? Good. Okay, right. we'll spend a couple of minutes on that a little bit later. Um, it's very, very interesting stuff, and it has to do with hope. Well, since this entire thing is about Christ and Him coming, and it's all about Him, we, we know that Christ is the hope of glory. And so the only way that we can have that hope is Christ in us. So it's not that we change us. It's that as we are in Him and become more and more like Him, then our hope of glory is set through Him. Very good. So yeah. the tells us that He is, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Very good, yeah, and we're, we're going to, uh, it's a great segue to start moving into chapter 5 because he starts to, to make some of those same arguments, Brad. Um, so, this kind of changes up a little bit, but back to kind of the logical argument that he's making in chapter 4 here. I was reading through this, and a couple things jumped out at me that um, I thought were interesting. There's a mic drop moment in um, verse 11. So he's talking about how Abraham, like faith, faith existed before there was law. Mm -hmm. So, and the evidence is Abraham believed God and it was counted in his righteousness. Now, was that circumcision that did it? No, it was before he was circumcised. And so he's pointing that out. So before he was circumcised, he was considered righteous. Yeah. So then listen to this. Now, if you were a Jew, this is going to be like a mic drop on my thing. He said, so then, Abraham is the middle of verse 11. Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. Now, the Jews were all, Abraham was our father. Oh, you, you know what? If you look at the scripture, he's the father of all who have not been circumcised. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what are you going to boast in now? Um, and then, against all hope, Abraham became the father of many nations, mm -hmm. not just one. So, Paul, Paul's trying to get them to see that faith is the law that existed before the law of Moses. The law of Moses came and went in between the, the overarching law of faith that still applies to very, very well put. And, and two, there in, uh, in verse 19, that they too, those who have not been circumcised, that they too could have righteousness credited to them as well. Got to stop saying credited to. It's really difficult. Um, but it's really an incredible idea that you're talking about this law of faith spans much greater than the law of the Torah, right? And they believed Abraham to have kept the Torah before the Torah was around. Like he was the father of the Jews. That circumcision was the outward sign of that law, right? So that was the stamp of the law, if you will. And he was righteous in God's eyes. He was made right in God's eyes prior to that. Very, very well put. Thank you uh, for that. So let's go ahead and uh, head into chapter 5. I'll read the first five verses. Therefore... Since we have been declared righteous by faith, that's the whole argument that he's making in, in chapter 4, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Remember, the, the, we had talked about God's glory uh, just a bit ago, and we're going to touch on that again. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Pivotal statement there. Hope does not disappoint. That's one of the big differences between our definition of hope and this definition of hope. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in question number one, um, this is a bit more of an abstract question, but I'm... Uh, it's certainly, I have been impacted by the way that we talk about terms and some of the religious terms that we use and, and that kind of thing. And as I'm reading this, Paul, um, we, I get to the point personally sometimes where I reread the same things over and over. And you know how when you say a word, a lot of times it loses its meaning, meaning that's called semantic satiation. You can sit there and just say the word over and over, and then you're like, I don't even know what that means anymore. I think sometimes I can do that with spiritual terms. And I think it's, it's awesome that when we're in a class like this, and we talk about what those different terms mean, I personally am starting to realize the deeper meaning in some of the religious terms I grew up with. Faith, and Brad, you did a really great job with that analogy that you talked about kind of taking this bike over a, a line over the Grand Canyon. Like it's, it's, and then Abraham, Abraham was so stabilized by his faith that he was willing to take the life of his heir, his only heir, right? That is something way different than the faith, that term that I overuse maybe in my mind. Um, and then gospel, Right, the gospel had, for me personally has taken on a new meaning because at the time they didn't have, they wouldn't go to Mark sixteen sixteen back then. Right, they didn't. They were relying on their experiences. They were relying on the old, right, the writings from Isaiah and that kind of thing. So the gospel, that good news, took on a new a meaning for me. Um, so how about the term grace? Um, and I always have heard grace means unmerited favor. It does. It absolutely does. But once again, I have said that phrase so many times that as I start going through some of this and I look at some of this stuff that Paul is pointing out with Jesus, it's starting to take on a new meaning. Uh, um, Tommy. Verses 4 through 10, he uses four terms 
that are basically synonymous. He says in verse 4 that God is rich in mercy. And then it goes on to speak of his great love with which he loved us. Love is used both as a noun and a verb there. His great love with which he loved mm -hmm. us. God is merciful. He's rich in mercy. His great love with which he loved us. In verse 5, by grace you are saved. Verse 7 spoke of the wealth of his grace. And in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, by grace you're saved in faith. The other term, the fourth term, is in verse 7, where the text speaks of the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God's grace is his rich mercy, mm -hmm. his mm -hmm. abundant love, his overwhelming kindness. All of these are used in parallelism to the term grace. And so all of them help define it. And of course, all of them, as Romans says, as Ephesians 2 says, are ultimately displayed through Jesus and through his Very good. Thank you so much for that. I, I had actually prepped Tommy a little bit maybe to, to help me understand this concept of grace and where it is used. I really like that he brought out the synonyms there because this one word encompasses many facets. And I like the term rich there. It's this deep, rich mercy. Um, and, and I think for me, one of the, the other things too as well is that it isn't just unmerited. What we actually deserve is being overlooked. It's being uh, um, forgiven, if you will. Yeah, it was I don't know about other people, but as I was growing up in the church, grace was not talked about a lot. It was one of those things that I think we were leaving it to other religions because it felt too, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't really understand why, but it wasn't talked about. But as I've gotten older, um, and, and as I, when I was young, that kind of engendered me, in me a feeling that I had to get it all right that I had to check all the boxes perfectly, or my salvation was at risk. Um, and it wasn't until recent years in my life that I started to understand and <coughs> embrace this blessing of grace that where I fall short, Jesus makes up the difference. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it, is, mm -hmm. it is a big part of our hope. It is a big part of our um, security in our salvation is knowing that Jesus paid it and we're going to be okay. We are saved. I, very good. In fact, I would, for me as well, grew up with, and I, maybe it's the English lexicon, like this why James, in my opinion, has to point out that faith and works can't necessarily exist without one another. Right, And so this idea that, that they're separate, like we keep them separate, and if you keep them separate, what happens is if I'm just going to live up by faith, it means I can do whatever I want to do. If I just live on this side where the works, it means I have to check the list, and if I don't, I don't have an expectation that I can get to heaven because I didn't make an A++ on the test. Grace kind of embodies the working of both of those things together, and that's what I'm learning. 
And the first time that I noticed that was in 1 John, where he says, you can pray for other people's sins. What? I didn't know that. Like, Now, he makes the caveat, you can't do that for sin leading to death, right? Like, you, you can't pray for someone that's clearly going down the path of rejecting God. But when a brother stumbles, you're allowed to pray. That blew my mind. I was 27 when, when that realization came. I mean, it's just been the past few years that that has started to, to connect for me. Uh, very, very good. Chris? So one of the things that it appears that we try to do is do works to earn grace. Right. You know, it's like, oh, right. grace is this gift. It's like, yeah, if I, if I do these things, then I'll get the grace. Yeah. So it's become clear that grace is not the end of the cross, which is something that maybe for me that mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, God was so graceful, you know, so merciful. He sent Jesus. Now, if you follow that perfectly, you can get some of that grace. That's not that's not the picture. That's not it at all. In fact, in Paul, I think he was talking about in chapter three how it establishes the law, how grace causes you, encourages you to do the things you're supposed to do. It's not the other way around. You don't do yes. those things yes. and earn the yes. grace or anything yes. like that, or even the faith. This is the same way. It's a faith that causes you to do these things. And it's like in a marriage. You know, you don't keep the laws. It's like, well, I haven't been here today, so I'm keeping the law. <laughs> and we don't even think about laws of marriage if you love the person or any relationship. Right, right. You don't have to. Yep. I don't have to know the laws of friendship to be a friend. If I have to check what the law is, then there's a problem with that relationship. The relationship causes you That's why we have lawyers, right? When things devolve to the point where we have to get legalistic, something is wrong with the relationship, right? So very, very good. Bob, did you have a a comment up here? Mm-hmm. I just read those and I think it's speaking what everybody's talking about here collectively. For the grace of God is appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny the godliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, yeah. and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there, there's the grace come down, the expectation of God and our our striving to Yeah. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'm learning the balance of, well, like Chris was kind of mentioning, I do the things because I believe, right? I believe that, that God will overlook, even though I know what I deserve. He's told me, and that's where that expectation of being saved, right? If I do stay too far on the side of that list, what happens? I don't know if he's going to accept me or not. And what is it like to live like that as a Christian? You don't get any benefit. You get no peace. You get no hope. What is the benefit there? So, 
If you had asked a Pharisee if they were perfect, what do you think they would have said? I think they would have said no. But I also think they would have said, I'm good enough. I've done that before. Right? And I think maybe as a byproduct for me personally, growing up in the church, maybe that can happen. I've never done anything that wrong. I'm good enough. Right? That's a dangerous position to be in. One of the things that this made me think of was from Luke 36. Um, uh, there was a woman of the town who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. You remember the story, the exceptionally touching story of this woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears uh, and using expensive oil to do that. And obviously it was a spectacle and people were like, why didn't she take this? and sell it and, and given it to the poor. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? We know this, the person that was forgiven more, right? And so when you say, I'm good enough, you don't really love the debt that has been canceled. Right? And Paul is pointing out that we all deserve wrath and that the law brings wrath. And so we are all forgiven a mountain of debt uh, in, in God's eyes. Very good. Okay. Question number two, verses three and four at first seem a bit tangential. Uh, why do you think Paul includes it here? So he talks about the fact that we get to rejoice in God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, uh, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. Um, why do you think Paul gets into this right here? We get to rejoice in God's glory. Also, we get to rejoice in suffering. There's a couple things that I love about this because it talks about, like when we talk about the anticipation of a good thing, right? Like getting to heaven and like, I know that God is going to save me. I am not perfect, but he said, he's told me, just like Abraham, that I'll have an heir and I believe him. Um, that suffering is the precursor, can be a precursor to hope. That's not what the world says at all. Like, that's completely opposite. As we learn about the kingdom, there's a lot of opposites in the kingdom of Jesus. Suffering leads to endurance. We know that, right? Endurance leads to character and character hope. Um, suffering doesn't guarantee these qualities, right? I mean, someone can be broken by suffering, but not if you have hope or trust in God. And a Christian uses suffering like a tool. It's just like disciplining your children. It's not enjoyable, but we're shaping, we're molding, we're growing in the anticipation of something better being produced. Um, we rejoice in the, in the hope of God's glory. The term of hope orients our perspective to the future. 
Um, what does the future hold in this life for Christians? It's not all great. I know that. At least that's what Jesus told us. Luke. Absolutely. Very good. It, it is um, uh, in a lot of senses, like James also says the same thing, right? Suffering produces endurance, right? You, you got to respond to it correctly for that, for that outcome to happen. And as we are, I, I, I like the, the idea, Luke, that when you're younger, um, I don't need grace as much. I, I'm saying that wrong, but because of the amount of time that I have or that I anticipate that I will have, right? It's not as important and things kind of get clearer, have a lot of deathbed confessions, you hear about that and that kind of thing, because when it comes that time, you're, you're really wondering if you're, uh, what lies beyond and that kind of thing. And for a Christian, hope does not disappoint, right? Hope does not disappoint, and that is the idea of hope. Not that I sure hope that come Judgment Day, I'm going to make the cut. That's not how a Christian is supposed to live. And if you have, I have had feelings like that. If you do, I would simply encourage you to continue to study to get to this point where you have a deep trust um, and the grace of God for him to save you. So um, I was listening to some of the lessons that Tom Hamilton had done on, on the book of Romans, and he made a really good point. He said he... Uh, he alluded to the fact that he was not tempted to drink alcohol, right? He's like, he'd go to parties and stuff like that or, or get-togethers and some, like his high school or college buddy or his high school buddies would say, would you want some of that? No, it didn't tempt him at all. Does that temptation, did that request make him stronger? Not really. I mean, there, there was no fight there, right? And so this idea of struggling is what produces the endurance. And that endurance produces the character. And that character produces the hope. And so suffering, uh, responded to appropriately, uh, produces a better person. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna geek out for just a moment here because I love this. I mentioned the dopaminergic system. Dopamine, right? Like that's the thing in you. so there's two things that kind of regulate uh, how good you feel in your body. One of those is serotonin, one of those is dopamine. You hear dope, right? Like methamphetamine and cocaine because that hyperloads that system and you just feel like you can do anything. Um, I was listening to a podcast talking about this system and there's a spiritual tie in here because 
The thing that is responsible for releasing that in your body is the expectation of a reward, not the receiving of a reward. It is the expectation of it. And it's a self-amplifying system because dopamine actually is a precursor to adrenaline. So what happens is you're about to get something, you receive it, that's released, adrenaline, it, it cycles back to do the same thing so that you, it is the motivation and it's the strongest um, motivating system that we know of, even more than survival, if you can believe it. And now the, the funny thing is, and this is the spiritual concept where all this ties in, it is meant to be a reward for effort or sacrifice. And when we shortcut that with something like a drug or doing something and getting something that you didn't really deserve, you're short-circuiting that and compromising that system. We are hardwired for hope to be a motivator. That's how God made us. That's how he designed us. Uh, and I find that just incredible. Like every time we learn more about the body, you see the pattern of God in all of that. And so that, we, we talk about people that go through catastrophic events, what kept them going? Hope. What keeps us going? That expectation that God will save us in the end. And I think that's a, an amazing thing. For sake of time, we're going we're gonna to skip question three. Uh, and we're going to start uh, looking at question four. I'm going to read six down through 11. Um, Hope does not disappoint. I'll back up to, to five and six. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. Look at how careful the language is there. Someone might possibly dare to die. They might do it. Uh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, We've been talking about how are we made right, how do we make peace, how do we uh, uh, satisfy God's wrath. We have been declared righteous by his blood. We will be saved through him from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, how much more since we have now been reconciled will we be, will we be saved by his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So, question number four. How does verse seven factor into the argument Paul is making about being helpless in verse six? And this is, I'm reading that, and that's a really weird way um, to word that now that I think about it. But what is the value of verse seven? Right? He makes this statement. So, for rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. Why is, why is he pointing that out? Bob and then Chris. Uh, I think he's stating this as a fact here because, you know, that's just the way it is. You, 
you wouldn't normally do something for somebody that you, uh, one, you didn't know, another, you wouldn't do something for someone who was evil and did something against you. So this is something that Jesus did for everyone, regardless of whether they were good or bad, uh, against him or for him. And, and so I think that's the point he's making. Jesus went beyond what is normal. And this is uh, hope beyond hope. It's something that isn't normally done, yet he did it for us. Kind of like the phrase I like, I like that uh, he loved us before we loved him. Yeah. Type of thing, the whole scenario. This is all of you. And all of his love and his caring for us. Excellent. Very good. Thank you, Bob. Chris? Yeah, certainly going beyond what a normal person mm-hmm. would think or do. And tying into that, that is the motivation. So he's mm-hmm. going on to say, this is what Christ did. This is what God did for you. And you know people wouldn't normally do this. Right, right. I think those two things together, understanding what sin does and how bad that is, understanding what God did, that is the motivation to do what is right. Mm -hmm. And if you Mm -hmm. think about that, what would be more effective to you or me to hear, hey, God, would you do this, this, and this, or... God did this for you. Yeah, yeah. And what, what will you do for Him? Certainly, I think the grace side of that, that is, that is grace right there. And to see that is a much greater motivator, kind of your yes. example that you were yes. just using. That motivation will get a lot more action out of people than the negative or the law, you know, that's just really good because it kind of preempts the transactional nature of give and get, right? Like, normally it's like, you do this and then I'll give you this. He, he does all of this <laughs> first to take that transactional, that legalistic nature out of his love, right? Out of his redemption, out of his sal- salvation. Yes, Tommy. Against some of the terms you used to describe us, before we were Christians. Uh, in verse 6, we were weak or we were helpless. In verse 6, we were ungodly. Uh, in verse 8, we were sinners. In verse 10, we were enemies. But all these terms are used to describe us uh, before. And now terms used are terms like saved in verse 9, uh, reconciled in verse 10, help the time. But particularly one word that catches my attention, um, Jesse, is the term ungodly mm. in 5 6. Because back in 4 5, the Bible says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Mm-hmm. Just because the ungodly. And those words, justify the ungodly, are used 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament at Exodus 23, verse 7, oh, interesting. where God is instructing human judges, and God tells them that they are not, that the New Record Standard says, not to acquit the guilty, or not to justify the ungodly. They're not to let the guilty go free. Interesting, yeah. God says you are judges not to do that in Exodus 23, 7. But God does it mm-hmm. in Romans 4. How can God do the very thing that he tells human judges not to do? Because while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. Yeah, very good. Excellent. And that kind of goes back to this idea of what happens when you... Uh, focus on the law rather than law giver, right? God made the law. It's he's not above or he is above the law I should say because he's the creator so he can tell a human judge to do this and do something different and still be just in that action to our benefit, Brad. Um, I think one really interesting story from the Old Testament is Joshua 9 and 10 with the Gibeonites. Joshua's coming in and he's the iniquity of the Amorites Joshua's going to come in and destroy all the wicked, ungodly nations. He knocks off Jericho, he knocks off Ai, and then all the kings come together and they're like, alright, this guy's invading our land, we're going to go fight against him. But the Gibeonites um, come and they lie and say that they're not part of the wicked, ungodly nation there, and they say, can you, will you promise not to destroy us? And we sign the treaty, and Joshua ignorantly says yes. But then, and then they say, okay, so they don't. They sign a treaty and don't destroy this wicked, ungodly nation. Then, when all those other kings hear about their that these guys are traitors, they go and fight the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites say, hey, uh, Joshua, uh, could you come save us? And Joshua does it. Mm-hmm. Not only do they receive mercy, they're not destroyed, they receive salvation. God made the sun stand still yes. to save yeah. the Gibeonites, this ungodly, wicked nation. Very, yeah. And they said, when, when, when they said, what do we have to do? We'll do anything. Joshua said, you got to be our servants forever. And he said, fair enough. Yeah. They, they completely submitted themselves. And hundreds of years later, when David is king, there's a plague, and it's because Saul did something to the Gibeonites, and God remembered that treaty hundreds of years later, this ungodly nation. Yeah. This is what God has been doing the whole yes. time. Yes, yes. They recognized they were powerless against God, and that's what we have to do. Excellent. Really good. Was, was that the first... Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's another one of those realizations that I'm coming to is I, I really pit the New Testament against the Old Testament. There's so much contrast, and yet that's a very wrong way of thinking because God has been doing this all of the time to other nations, including, you know, outside of his chosen people and that kind of thing. And it's, it's beautiful, really, when you see it because then the kingdom of Christ is much more vibrant when you see that God has been working up to this point 
And, and revealing this kingdom uh, under Jesus, it's really incredible. Okay, very good. Um, so how does verse 7 factor in? We talked about the, the, the ungodly. If, like, who, who would you die for? Right? There's probably a handful of people that you would be willing to die for. Right? Your kids, your, uh, your family, and that's probably about it. Maybe, maybe, maybe a really close friend. That is the best of humanity. That's the very, very best of humanity. And we might possibly dare to do that. And then the contrast is God did that for us when we were his enemy, when we hated him. Yeah. Law enforcement has, um, I'll say, hijackers first. And a lot of them have this tattoo on them or, or something like that. And I disagree on several levels with it. But that's the idea. you got to think this is something that we are trained to do, to run towards that fire. Mm-hmm. Hours and hours of training on this, and we see where it fails with like the evolving school shooting, where guys are standing in the hallway instead of doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. But that's how all of us would react. Yeah. That's yeah. Not to justify their actions, but they they messed up. But that's that's the whole point of this, and, and that's where Christ steps up ahead without that training, without because He knows what He's supposed to be doing. You know, military, you have to train people to do all of those things. And in reality, what they found is the psychology of it is they're not doing it for themselves or for the country, they're doing it for their buddy. The guy mm-hmm. next to them in the trench. Gotcha. The guy next to them in the foxhole. If you read any of the, the literature mm-hmm. um, on all of that, the psychology of it. And in reality, we won't do that, right? You hear the, the weird examples of people that protect people in the store, but it's never like that. And that's, that shows Christ's strength and that shows his fortitude in that moment. And we read of his struggle also leading into the garden how he doesn't, he wants to pass off. Yes. It, very good. And, and the thing too is, <clears throat> like we think of those moments as like a snap decision, right? And the training kicks in. This is someone marching towards the thing they don't want, Right? Like purposefully, knowingly accepting death on a cross. Why? God demonstrated. I love that. Like, uh, I think it was in chapter 3 when he talks about Christ being on full display. And on full display, God is demonstrating how far he is willing to go and how far Jesus is willing to go because it's the same thing. It would die for the ungodly. All right, um, the one last thing that uh, before uh, the next, the final bell is question five, restate 10 in your own words. I'm just going to go ahead uh, and read this. If God can do all things through Jesus' death, how much more can he do uh, with Jesus' life, the resurrected Jesus? And uh, if God can do this for his enemies, think what he will do uh, for his friends. And it reminds me of Matthew 7 and verse 9 of Jesus saying, if any, if, Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, right? We know what we would do for our kids. Nearly anything, right? Um, and we're evil. If that's the case, how much more, just like Paul was saying, will your Father in heaven give good gifts? To those who ask him, 
Thank you so much for your, your comments and participation this morning.